This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. How does this sound? This sounds better, right? That sounds way better. Okay. We're having to record this over the internet. Not in the same because we're because we're, we're just being a little safer right now because Illinois is crazy, coronavirus wise. Well, if we still have a democracy on Thursday, we're happy. We're glad the democracy survived. Welcome to the disruptors. <laughs> yeah, so, so people are going to be listening to this. No one's going to listen to this podcast on Thursday yet. Well, like, let's make it um, let's make it seem relevant. So. Why did we choose to have Chandra Crane on the podcast for election week? Well, on the face of it, someone who wrote a book about a multi-ethnic or multi-racial identity doesn't seem to be the place that you would begin to talk about an election in the United States. I think there's something beautiful about disrupting the election cycle, which is really about like black and white, choosing one side or another with a podcast interview that's with someone who is who's really about the awkward sort of messy in between yeah i think one of the things that that came across clearly in this episode is that when you have a multi-ethnic identity or interracial identity you can sometimes feel like you live in multiple worlds and trying to make sense of living in that multiple world can be complicated and part of what it means to be a Christian in America is to not actually feel at home in any place. I don't think that any Christian can be completely comfortable with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. But it's it's some it's it's an attempt as a Christian, I think, in the political square to make sense of your life as a third thing that is nonetheless integrated and whole and that, that finds its coherence. The conversation between me and Chandra was an attempt to allow her space and other people of multiracial backgrounds to make sense of, of their own identity. And so that, that search for identity formation that is a part of the human experience more broadly happens in our racial um, ethnic identities. And it also happens in trying to find the Christian witness in the public square. Does the podcast seem like I just come on the podcast and make stuff up? No, not at all. It is part of the disruptive charm. This is a key point for the people in the streets. Mm-hmm. Make your flaws into your quirks that people then That's, like. That is yes. it. For so, real. So like, yes, I just pull up to the podcast and do whatever interests me in the moment. And people say that's, that's part right. of your charm. Like I'm disorganized. That's, right. that's part of my charm. So just make it a part of your charm and then you've won the game. And I'm an expert at getting my feelings hurt. Oh. Right? And I've had oh. to make that a superpower. Yes. One of the good things about being in season two is that you get a little bit more power. (laughs) (laughs) So you can choose who you wanted to have on the podcast. And when we started talking about season two, I said, I want Chandra on the podcast. Thank you. This is like an internet friendship. So I first saw you on Twitter and said, she seems like an interesting person. And then I saw that your book, (laughs) 
Mixed Blessings was going to come out. And I said, this seems like something that would be good for the Disruptors podcast. But for the people who don't follow you on Twitter, which they should, and other places, yeah. can you give us a little bit of information about your background, who you are, where you come from, and what you do? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a multi-ethnic and multicultural background. So when I was writing the book and I wanted to be on season two, I made sure to use the word disrupt or disrupt oh. several times. <laughs> Is it in there? Is it? <laughs> it's so in there. Okay, there we go. I was like, what can I do to make sure? So, but we are, right? We're disruptive. Yeah. Uh, multi-ethnic people, multicultural people are disruptive. We're disruptive of mono-ethnic assumptions. We're disruptive of even multi-ethnic spaces made up of mono-ethnic people. And so I've spent my life being disruptive. And like you were saying earlier, I've learned how to make that into a superpower, like Richard said, into a quirk, like you said, um, how to own it. But it's been a long journey. So my birth father was Thai, a Thai national. He and my mom split up before I was born. And then it was just her and me. My mom is white American, European American. Um, it was just her and me for about five years. And then she remarried. She remarried my adoptive dad stepdad, my dad, who was African-American. And so I've grown up at the intersection of so many different cultures and nationalities and ethnicities. I also grew up in New Mexico, and that's a strong part of who I am. So that mestizo reality that um, I just listened to Professor Chow Romero's uh, episode just dropped, and I was cheering and, and yesing and amening when he was talking about his multi-ethnicity, his multiracial story. So uh, I'm a campus minister with university and I had a chance to write this book just talking about the joy and the sorrow, mm -hmm. the pain and the privilege of being mixed. I'm in an interracial marriage. And so my mm -hmm. daughter um, and my son, but much more my daughter, as far as um, people we concerned with her hair and asking her questions mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. So can you tell me what it was like growing up with a multi-ethnic identity and how did you begin to make sense of your own self as a kid? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Were you accepted, rejected? How did that go? Although no two stories are the same, and obviously if we have different parts of our heritage, mixed people are going to have different stories across the board. But one of the similarities is that moment in which you realize you're not like anyone else in society, but you also are maybe not like anyone else in your family. And that, that sense of displacement, of perpetual displacement, I think is a very common thing among multi-ethnic folks. And I definitely felt it was like, felt it when I was a kid. What I felt so keenly was, where do I fit in? I don't even fit in at home. I don't look like my parents. Obviously, I didn't look like my adopted dad. Yeah. Although it's fun because uh, I have a sense of humor. And people used to say when I was in high school, oh, yeah, I can see it. You, you've got Raja's smile. <laughs> uh, right? And yeah. he would say, well, if you feed them long enough, they start to look yeah. like you. So... <laughs> But as far as actual phenotype, right? I just didn't look like anybody. It's my daughter, she, um, like, I'm darker for those of you who, who, I mean, how you, how you don't know that, but I'm a, I'm like black, black. <laughs> so my, my daughter is brown and my wife is white. And so my daughter and my other kids, they're kind of like, dad, like, you're darker than I am and I'm lighter than mom. They're trying, they're even as a, like a four to six year old, she's trying to make sense of, mm -hmm. like, how do I fit in this thing? And then we were talking Absolutely. about, um, my son. My son, who's four, he was talking about my book, and he was he calls it reading with black <laughs> instead of reading wild black. I love it. And then he goes like, "Who are the black people?" I was like, "Well, son, you're black too." He's like, "Oh yeah, I forgot." <laughs> so sometimes he kind right. of like loses track. And we we used to live. This is my my. We have I have a bunch of kids. I was just talking about um, Peter, the um, the six year old. 
my older son, um, Luke, when we lived in Scotland, there weren't that many, there weren't that many African American or black <laughs> people, people of African descent. So there was a Korean kid who was in his class. And he said, well, we're the brown people. So that was like, <laughs> he had yes. picked the closest thing and said, okay, we're in one little group and this is everybody else. Was that hard for you to kind of fit in with kids in school? Yeah, it was it was really hard. I mean, when I was younger, I looked fully, whatever that means, yeah. Asian. And so, of course, the like pulling the eyes tight to make squinty eyes and the do you know Kung Fu question. Um, I definitely had to find my community elsewhere. So especially rolling on into high school, my theater peeps, my band nerds, oh, you're a theater my person. speech and debate. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. And, and finding other, basically other misfits, right? Whether it's because of ethnicity or because of even sexuality or who they were in personality. Um, it's been a lifetime of figuring out where do I go to fit? And the most recent part is now reintegrating my ethnicity. Yeah. For a long time, I just kind of had to be colorblind. Yeah. Right. To find my people. What about um, your church? Did your church deal with these issues? Were you in a monocultural church, a multi-ethnic church? <laughs> was, did, was, did your Christian faith at any point help you make sense um, as you're growing up of your ethnic identity? Yeah. So I wasn't raised in the church. Okay. So I became a believer in college. During my freshman year of college, I really tried to be Buddhist because I wanted to get in touch with my Thai ethnicity. Um, but I'm really lazy, so it was just kind of like, yeah, I'm a Buddhist, whatever. Um, it didn't actually <laughs> yes. change my life any. That sounds like when I was in middle school. I wrote about this in, in the book. I was in middle uh-huh. school when the Malcolm X book came out. and not right. So not the book, the movie, the autobiography of Malcolm X with Denzel Washington. And there's a lot of black people who just said, okay, I'm Muslim for a little bit. They weren't really right. Muslim, right. but it's just like, this is the time. This is like being pro-black. Well, this is back in the day in the 90s. If you were from the 90s and you remember this, this time, yep. It's like when they were black consciousness and hip hop, and we had those Africa medallions. But we weren't really oh, yeah, trying to, the yeah, we weren't really trying to go back yeah. to. It was like a, a, our appropriation of certain aspects of African culture. There was kind of a hodgepodge from. It wasn't like you know Ugandan and Nigerian and Rwandan. It was just like this is vaguely African. Let me get it. Right. This is trying to make sense. And, and I understand that it was in a sense of our identity was being devalued, and so we started reaching for anything in the culture. Um, what we thought African culture was to give us a sense of self. And so this kind of turn to Buddhism in college makes sense to trying to make sense of, well, who am I as a person? But that didn't seem to stick. So you were saying. Right. Well, and because because one, you know, I do believe that Jesus is is the way, the truth and the life for sure. Um, but two, because I didn't have any. I was growing up in a small town in New Mexico that is about half and half Hispanic um, or Chicano and white. So I didn't have any other Asian peeps, really. Uh, I didn't, there weren't really many black folks. And so I ended up being immersed in whiteness no matter what. And so when I became a believer, I ended up going to a very white church. And again, it was colorblind. It was, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the gospel, which is all beautiful, right? But it took until I was in my late 30s to come across a multi-ethnic church to finally feel like I was home. Was it a multi-ethnic church that, that dealt with issues of race, or were you just happy to see different kinds of people in the pews? And this isn't to ask you to shade your church, but I think there's kind of like two experiences of multi-ethnic churches. It's like, okay, I'm glad that I don't feel like I'm in this space where there isn't any diversity. And then there's to kind of say, well, this is a church that takes who I am seriously. Yeah, so I think because we were in, because we are here in the Deep South, 
and in a predominantly white, predominantly once upon a time slaveholder ethnic or uh, denomination, PCA, having a black head pastor does insert some gravitas that it wouldn't have otherwise, yeah. right? So in a way, it is a legitimately multi-ethnic church. But even in the 10 years we've been here, and I mentioned this in the book, I have to start to realize, is it really multi-ethnic? It's just black and white yes. for the most part, right? And it's certainly not multicultural yes. because we're all the same ecclesi ecclesiastically, we're all the same educationally, economically, anything that starts with E, yes. we're all the same. <laughs> and, and so there's definitely a sense of even reevaluating I first walked in this church and I saw people who as a whole looked like they didn't fit anywhere else. Yes. And that's beautiful. And that's what drew me in. But now really wanting to pursue justice and wanting to push in deeper and to not settle yeah. and to not end up turning white. Right. Which so I, I, I cited Coriel Edwards and her really powerful research on, and, and there are other uh, authors as well on why multi-ethnic churches skew white yeah. right because whiteness is so powerful and because if we're not actively working against it it takes over you, and a lot of really nice white people who get excited about a black head pastor start coming to church and then your demographics shift yeah. and i don't know what to do about that right i don't know how to do that well i wanted to see you're gonna you're gonna make i want to ask you some questions about you but you you i'm gonna i'm gonna resist that the, you, you you left that bait but i'm gonna not take it i want to ask you <laughs> Something that you said a few minutes ago, you yeah. talked about how it was not necessarily multi-ethnic, but it was black-white. But as someone who has um, some Asian descent um, as a part of your background, how does it feel to often feel? I mean, how does what is that experience like when it's often multi-ethnicity is code for the black-white binary? How do you find yourself even disrupting the multi-ethnic conversation yeah. as someone who shares some Asian and now remind me, um, it was Thai, and your your father was. My birth father was Thai. Your birth father. Was... My birth mom yes. is white American. Yeah, I was. Just, I didn't know if you had given her like it, like right. if she was um, right. Irish or something. But he was white and Thai. Yes. A, a Scotch Irish. Yeah, Scotch Irish. But you know, yeah, white. white. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah, white. So yeah, how how does it feel to kind of try to talk about multi ethnicity with with that aspect being brought in, even in the sense of when Americans think about Asian, sometimes it's a code for. Korean and Chinese versus. Sure. So, can you say something about that? Yeah, the Thai diaspora is tiny, 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 right? And it, and it comes from a weird place of privilege. Like most Thai folks in America don't have that refugee narrative that most other Southeast Asian folks have. Um, most of them came as students from a family who has wealth. That's that's how my birth father came to the United States to study. So, the organization I work with, InterVarsity. Um, that was another place where I kind of started my ethnic identity journey was when I came on staff being freed by the organization to start asking these questions. Um, and so we have a, uh, a conference every three years for Asian American staff and volunteers. And I remember going to, I think our latest one was in LA, going there and a lot of the Asian staff who are from the Midwest were like, yes, let's go get boba and let's go get Korean barbecue and let's go find a Thai restaurant. And they were so excited. They were like, look at all the Asian food. And I'm looking around me and saying, look at all the Asians, yeah. <laughs> right? Because yeah. I don't see restaurants, much less Asian people. There's a large um, Vietnamese and Hmong community on the coast, yeah. but further inland up here in Jackson, there just aren't many people. So yeah, it feels 
it definitely feels like my story is constantly being overlooked and that constant sense of hang on guys hang on the whole family isn't here and it's that disruption of guys this is sweet but it's not everybody do you think that the asian i mean i don't want you to speak for all thai christians or all asian americans but what are the ways in which you think that you, you talked about mixed blessing but i want to talk a little bit about at least the thai context or the asian american context how do you think they help complicate the black-white binary that, that takes up so much energy in our reconciliation and justice conversations? I love that you said helped complicate. I mean, that's the heart of disruption, yes. right? It's actually a blessing to complicate things. I think we see the, the story of a privilege and a pain more clearly in other people of color aside from black folks. Black folks obviously have a history of pain and of privilege, but it's a lot of pain and slavery is no joke. And even those with refugee status, like those in the Hmong community, they are choosing to come here. Right. And so I think it too easily becomes a question of privilege versus pain. And so I feel like for those of us who are people of color uh, of another ethnicity, whether it's indigenous peoples or Asians or brown folks, like Professor Chow Romero was talking about, but especially then also mixed folks, whether you're mixed within, uh, whether you're Japanese, Chinese mixed or mixed with white, um, it breaks up this conversation, which assumes that everybody is either completely privileged or completely oppressed. And so I think it pushes back on that and reminds us that we all have pain that needs to be healed and needs to be cared for and the church needs to act on. But we do all in some way have at least some privilege that we can act on, that we can serve others. Um, so I, li- I like reminding people that. I, I don't I like, I am glad I get to remind people yes. of that. I don't know if I like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so th- when you said that, that was an important qualification. So as someone who, I mean, I guess you can say, at least as it relates to African-Americans, I feel like there's almost an assumption that we're going to enter into the racial conversation and the justice conversation. Mm-hmm. But in some sense, like, because of the place of Asian Americans kind of in Christian ecology, I guess you could say, this is a conversation in theory that you could avoid or you could ignore. What made you decide that this is something that I have to be involved in? And what's been the cost for that for you personally in your own kind of life and Christian vocation? I love that my story is, is multi-ethnic. I think if I, especially now that my phenotype is mostly white, people can tell that I'm something, yes. right? but I am not wearing my blackness on my skin. I can pass. And even a lot of Asians, even in the age of yellow peril and of COVID, from a distance, most Asians can pass in some way that black and brown folks can't. But I wear my blackness on my sleeve, right? I was raised by a black man. I have black aunties and uncles. The African diaspora is an important part of my heritage, not in a... um, not in an appropriative way, but in a way that was handed to me as a gift when my dad decided to adopt me. Um, and so I choose a lot of times to wear my BLM shirt when I'm going into white spaces. Is that a cost that is huge? No. Is it something I can take off and put on? Yes. So there's a privilege there, but I choose to enter into that because I want to disrupt people's expectations, right? And I, one thing I love is I, I worked for 10 years with black law students, um, with, with, with law students uh, of all ethnicities, but worked closely with 
students in the Black Law Student Association chapter. And so I have a shirt that says Black Lawyers Matter. <laughs> right. And I love wearing that because people don't know how to react. Yeah. It's almost like when it's BLM and it's this black shirt with the white print, they can just kind of dismiss it. Yeah. But when, even when it's the Imago Day University shirt, right, which has on the back, yeah. this is why Black Lives Matter to yeah. God, right, because of Imago Day. But when I wear this gray and white shirt that says Black Lawyers Matter, yeah. it really stops people. Like, how are you going to argue with that? Right. One of the things that's difficult for me are bad arguments. And this is the hard part about existing on the Internet because the Internet is full <laughs> of bad arguments. But things that just things that, are, that Christians say that are just like unendingly frustrating to me. And one of them is about like the issue of saying something like Black Lives Matter or even forget the statement. It's when, when you highlight the unique contributions of black people, it gets people in their feelings in a way that it happens nowhere else. And I tweeted about this last weekend, but it's relevant to what you said. We have whole books about Celtic spirituality and Celtic Christianity and the Celtic way of evangelism. Yes. Basically, we have whole books about how the Irish are amazing. And nobody runs around yelling at the Irish people and calling them divisive or critical race theories. We have, we have an actual thing in Christianity called Anglophiles where people just love British culture. And they right. just say the British accent and British fiction. And, and listen, and they say there's a sensibility to British writing that is distinctive and unique that I identify with, even though I'm not British. And no one says, well, can I only read this writing if I'm a British person? Like, no, this is something. And so, but the moment that you say black, and when I say black, I mean in code for African-American culture in the United States. That's what I'm using mm -hmm, it here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The moment that you say that, it's like, I don't see color. Well, hold on. You were an Anglophile. You love C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and the Inklings because that's British literature. Right. Well, why can't I say black literature? Right. And so it's like, it's this, it's this idea that only certain communities are allowed to bring their blessings to the wider, the wider church. You called the name of your book Mixed Blessings. And so you're not just talking about what a particular ethnicity brings to the body of Christ, but like how these kind of things cluster together. So can you say a little bit about the uniqueness of what multi-ethnic identities bring to the body of Christ? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because it's actually mixed blessing singular. Oh, mixed blessing. And that's on purpose. No, that's cool. It's cool. I'm glad you said it because I can then clarify it's on purpose because, right, the phrase mixed blessings has a little bit of a negative connotation, right? Yeah. And part of what I feel like a lot of us who are multi-ethnic and choose to use the word mixed are doing is in the same heart as Brian Bantam when he did Redeeming Mulatto, right? Yeah. Like, I'm going to reclaim the goodness of the word mixed and say, no, no, this is a positive. Like, I'm going to take away the ugliness of, of you know, being a mixed breed or the sense of, of white purity or the sense of even the one drop rule or of blood quantum. And I'm going to say, no, mixed is a good thing. And so when I wanted to name it mixed blessing, I wanted to do it to say, we, it is a good thing. We can sit comfortably in the wholeness of being mixed. And that is a gift from God. And there's no negative to it. Yeah. Right now being mixed in our broken world has some negative experiences. But being mixed is not, it's its not the tragic mulatto trope. It's yes. not the wandering mestizo hope, uh, trope, right? It is, you know, this is a good thing. And because I think when we speak of multi-ethnicity, we assume that it's a group. And yes. so I like using mixed and a mixed blessing to point to a singular person. Yes. Like you, single per, singular person, are made up of multiple ethnicities, multiple experiences, multiple history and heritage, and you are a blessing and that is a good thing. 
I feel like it's very difficult to get someone to articulate this well. And I think about something like the Tiger Woods phenomenon. Where he's going, well, I'm not black. I'm, I forget what he exactly said. Hablanation? Yeah, so like he was. started to. But, and, and so this is the tricky part is because, especially when African is a part of that mix, and because of the history of this country, where one drop of African blood made you black, we want to like have everybody on our team, right? It is both a negative and a positive in the sense of like it's a, it's rooted in racism, like how you do that. But it's then become a, a, fa- a part of our culture. But you also want to say, if as, as someone who's in an interracial fam- interracial marriage, you don't want to have have the kid deny the other part of who they are. And so, people who can articulate that well without denying one part of themselves is difficult. And so, I'm, I'm I was glad that you talked about um, mixed blessing as something that you're trying to retain. And so, yeah. is there any advice or reflections on how you do that? How do you um, kind of own your multi-ethnicity without potentially downplaying the ethnic part of who you are that might be least acceptable to society. So I think the part of what made people like respond so strongly to Tiger is because it felt like he was denying the part that the rest of the culture didn't want to emphasize anyway. So how do you acknowledge your sure. complexity without denying the part that's going to like this will be most um, resisted in the wider culture? There's two things that come to mind. The first is the sense that you can be multi-ethnic, um, especially black or white, in two ways, right? You can be in the sense of your marriage, right, in the beauty of you and your wife saying, we're going to defy these conventional norms. We're going to not allow the divide between black and white to be an issue for us, even though it's hard, right? But the, in itself, it's good, even though in society it's unaccepted. But also, I mean most black folks do have white ethnicity, right? Because of the history of rape by the enslaved of slaveholders. So I think it's acknowledging that our mixed ethnicity can come to us in ways that are both powerful and harmful. And that as we look at books like Prophetic Lament with Professor Sungchan Ra, we can lament the brokenness, but still see the good that comes out of it, right? We can sit in that. And the second thing, when we think about Tiger, that is interesting to me, which I used to harass my husband a long time ago, before we had kids, before Tiger had a scandal, like Tiger and I would have had beautiful babies, okay? (laughs) They would have been about one third white, one third black, and one third Thai. Like they would have been gorgeous. And I also don't make that joke anymore because of, you know, the fetishizing of mixed children. (laughs) One thing that I've noticed in contrast with like Tiger Woods and President Obama, and then now with Kamala Harris is... President Obama is mixed, right? He's black, white, but it was so important. And this is a good thing. I am not at all down on this. It was so important for him to identify as black. One, because that's true to who he is, but two, because we were about to have a black president. And that means a lot. But I feel like Kamala has the opportunity and a little more of the freedom to identify as mixed. Because in this cultural moment, we've already had someone of African ancestry fill one of the two highest offices in the land. And because she's a woman, she's already kind of navigating that weird, mixed, split, have to be more than one thing. And so I think it's also powerful to be able to say, well, how do I identify? Do I identify monoethnically? And if so, that's okay. Like for your kids to identify as black, if that's what they, how they want to identify, especially as black folks in a, a white-centric world, that's okay. Yeah. But it has to be their choice, right? And if they want to ch- 
identify as mixed and to try and hold white and black intention, that's okay. And if they want to identify something else entirely, or if they want to identify as some mix, right? Like Cablin Asian, that's okay too. The point being it's their choice and there's a way to do that healthily and unhealthily. Yeah. Well, I I don't raise colorblind children. So so let me, me this is what I try to say to them. This history is yours. Yes. In the sense yes. of the things that like I'm not I'm less concerned with the language that the children use to refer to themselves than I am to understand that like what Martin Luther King did, what Frederick Douglass did, what Fannie Lou Hamer did is a part of your history. And I talk about those three characters as important as being both black and Christian. And so there's a long history of, of this tradition that is also an important part of who you are. And I also say to my kids, listen, when the cops pull you over, you can't tell them what you identify with. Mm-mm. You can't Mm-mm. say, well, actually, I'm mixed. It's like when the cops try to hit you upside the head, you just, you're black to them. And so right. I say to them, right. like, you have to understand that, like, regardless of what you say, and, 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 and I say that, like, flippantly, I, I understand that, like, not every cop's going to pull somebody over, hit somebody upside the head. I'm talking about living in a racialized world where you don't always yeah. get to define for, um, as you walk into a space, how people are going to perceive you. And so they need to, my children need to understand like what that's like. And I've used the language oftentimes, you talk about the fetishization of of mixed kids. What is it like to go from being cute to dangerous? Mm. And so while those mixed kids are young, they're cute. They're they're curly hair is cute. But once Mm -hmm. my son's voice dropped and and, and his his little beard start to grow. Well, look, even before that, right? That's even before that, because one thing with black children is that they are seen as being older than they really are, yes. right? That they have that working against them. So it's not even like they cute till they're 10. Yeah. They only cute till they're seven. Exactly. And, so, and, yeah. so, and then they become a threat. So what about this? And, and this, is, this is once again going into like all of the ways in which this becomes more complicated. I feel like there's two things that are also happening as it relates to mixed um, people. And one is sometimes they're seen as a solution to racism. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we need to have more interracial relationships. And then once that happens, racism will go away. So that's part one. Maybe I should ask them separately, but I'll start with asking them together and then I'll make sure. Okay. To... Okay. The other part is because we're in such a like racialized moment, we are high. We're, we're becoming high identifiers. So like mm-hmm. emphasizing my blackness or my Koreanness or my Asian, whatever, I mean, whatever you want, whatever um, ethnicity you come from. So there's almost like a resegregation happening. So how how do you think that being mixed fixed fixed in with both the idea that mixed relationships and mixed children are some kind of symbol of the gospel in a way that's going to help end racism, but also we have this this point of period in time where we're strongly identifying with the importance of owning our ethnic identity. So it feels like mixed people are being pulled in two different ways. One Use your bigness, your mixedness, if I can say that, and even the family from which you come from as this parable for reconciliation. That's one pool I feel like is happening. And the other one is, no, 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 choose an ethnicity because we're now in a culture where, like, owning being Thai is the most important thing and then speaking mm-hmm. about your Thai heritage. How, do you see that happening? And, and what do you feel like is the proper way forward in that context? Yeah, so like a good seminarian, I think there are two things, and they both start with B. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think one is bridging, right? And that sense of be the bridge, which is a beautiful ministry, right? Latasha Morrison is an amazing woman. What she's doing is amazing. But I think part of the pushback that I've seen out of uh, women like Akemeni Uwan, who then is quoting other 
women whose shoulders we all stand on, is the idea that, um, and somewhat Gloria Anzaldúa, who wrote Borderlands, who is herself um, exploring mestiza identity, is the bridge is not my back. Like, I don't have to be the bridge. I can help build bridges. Because yes, people want to turn mixed folks into props, right? Or a magic wand that you can wave and get rid of all of our problems. And that's not only not true because it doesn't work, it's also not true because that's not respecting the Imago Dei, right? I am not an object to be used to fix all of the ills and harms of society. So I think learning how to help others build bridges and how to be a part of bridge building without being forced into being a bridge that people are just going to walk on um, is the first part. And then the second one, I think, is so learning boundaries in the sense that I can choose, again, when, when you're facing a hostile environment, when you're facing down someone, especially as someone who is mixed with a black or brown ethnicity, if you will, um, yeah, you are what you are in their eyes. But in safe places, in our families, in our day-to-day life, in our day-to-day walk with Christ, the ability to set these boundaries of, I will choose to identify in this way, in this moment, and that is my choice. And I get to set a boundary, but I can also shift that boundary, right? I can be fluid. And I think that's then, maybe it's three Bs, then pushing back on binaries, right? So saying, actually, this binary that says either Kamala is either an Indian American woman or she's a black woman and actually saying, no, she's both. And she can choose to move in and out of those in a way that is honoring to herself and to her dignity. Um, And even the sense that sometimes she can choose to identify as a woman or as a politician, right? Because the thing is, it sounds so presumptive when we say I have a right to choose how I identify, but monoethnic people get to choose too, right? Like you get to choose whether today do I want to be foremost investing in my identity as a podcast host, or am I going to be thinking about myself as an Anglican priest? Am I going to be thinking about myself as a dad? Am I going to be thinking about myself as a black man, right? And so the right of multi-ethnic people to do the same thing and to say, well, today I choose to embrace my inner geek and I'm all about Star Trek and the billion awesome Star Trek shows that are dropping left and right. I mean, I'm not going to... The new Star Wars... What's the one What's the one with the um, Voyager? No, no. What's the new one on CBS? Just um, Yeah, D- Discovery. Discovery. Oh, man. Oh, I'm, all, I'm, I'm full of Discovery. It's so good. <laughs> it, it is... I'm, Low, low, this you 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 have, have opened up a door that most people uh-huh, don't understand. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm actually a sci-fi geek. That's what I that's, yes. what, that's what I no, read. I think I picked that up on Twitter. Uh, oh, yeah. okay. It comes out every now and then, but I'm a huge sci-fi person. And so, I mean, even like my fa- my favorite album probably is AT Aliens by um, Outkast, which is kind of like just a weird <laughs> rap album genre-wise. Right. And this well, is my yeah. first Outkast um, reference of season two. So this is like, no, it's not. It's not. It's not it's a like season a seventh two. or something. Okay, I gotta make. Yeah. I gotta stay on brand. I gotta stay on brand. <laughs> so, if you could say then, as I'm looking at what I hope comes from my book and people's understanding of multi-ethnicity in general, like what do you hope that the church learns or begin to begin to do with and for people who who have multi-ethnic identities? Well, I think it goes back to the idea of seeing people how they desire to be seen. And so it, I think, again, the binary we have in our mind is we're either fully vested in our ethnicity or colorblind. And I don't think those are the two options only. I think there can be the sense of I'm not being colorblind, but I'm choosing to step into a different spot in a different place in my ethnicity. Today, I'm going to be a sci-fi geek and I'm going to geek out over Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and I'm going to be texting with all my friends about the latest episode of Lower Decks. And, you know, I can do that. 
I think when the church realizes that, it actually is a gift to the whole church because then we start seeing people out of their boxes and in their fullness. So then I'm fully invested in my identity as all of these things. And the church is seeing me as a woman, as a sci-fi geek, as an author, as a wife and mother, as a person of mixed ethnicity, as a person of Thai ethnicity, right? Or white, or my my multicultural upbringing in, in the black community, uh, such as it was. It was like, you know, three of us in my hometown. One of them was my dad. It's okay, but, <laughs> I was telling people it's good when you get to change the demographics of your city. Like if they have to oh. update, up and date the Wikipedia. I think when the Macaulays that's moved right. in, that's like five yes. new black people to Wheaton. That's like <laughs> shift. That's right. Someone that's had right. to edit shift. it. <laughs> shift. Yeah, there we go. Well, like our, our sign actually used to say, you know, home of thirteen thousand people and three or four old grouches. And my dad was always like, "That's me. That's me. I'm one of them grouches." Yeah, Dad, you sure are. Um, what was I saying? Well, we talk, I, I, you were talking about oh, um, the, church. the church, yes. Yeah. So I think, and this is something that's been painful even in an organization, university is, is wonderful and I think often leads the charge on matters of multi-ethnicity. But one area in which we are not doing as well as we want to be doing is when we have breakouts, right, sessions for people of color, it's like, okay, all the black folk go, go in this room and be free from the influence of whiteness and rejoice in your culture and in your, your variety of stories. Um, all right, let's go. La Familia, all of the Chicanos, Chicanas, let's go here. Let's do this. But there's often not a space for mixed folks. People just forget that mixed folks exist because, right, they want to push us into one box or another. And so I think when the church actually just opens her eyes, when we open our eyes in the church and say, oh, there are people here with stories. I think that's a gift to mixed people, but I also think it's a gift to the church because once we start getting out of those boxes, then we're looking around and saying, who is either not here and needs to be welcomed in or who is here and not being seen in their entirety? So who are the marginalized, right? Who are the folks who are queer and side B and like Wesley Hill trying to be authentic to who they are, but also be orthodox in their orientation and their faith? Who are those of us who are um, dealing with mental illness and who are not neurotypical and who are those who are differently abled and are shut in, right? That just everyone that's marginalized that we don't see. And oftentimes, I think it's something you were talking about with Professor Chow Romero recently. Sometimes everyone else's stories get caught up in the very important story of black and white, right? And so when the church starts seeing that there are other categories, I think it opens huge things. And I think it opens huge things to us in terms of serving and also witnessing, right? When we are have our eyes open to who's not here or who's not being served, then we're naturally starting to look around and say, oh, where do we need to do our job better? Where do we need to love better? Hey, everybody. Producer Richard Clark here. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know about another podcast they've just launched. And honestly, if you're into disruptors, I think you're going to like this one. It's called the Every Voice Now podcast. Every week, Myla Kim and Ed Gilbreth showcase the stories of how authors of color manage to write and publish their books. Their second episode is with someone you might be familiar with. Our conversation with Chandra Crane was so interesting. So she's half white, but in the white culture, she felt like she wasn't fully white, right? But her birth dad is a Thai national in the Southeast Asian group. She always felt white, you know, but then she grew up with an African-American dad who raised her and where she never really felt like she belonged. And 
She shares a lot about that pain and the journey of writing is pressing into that pain of feeling marginalized and sharing that journey with people. And so she was just so honest about that whole journey of feeling and carrying that weight as she's writing. Yeah, and through her experience of pain and marginalization, you really understand the grace that she's experienced in shows and the hope that she's been able to find through very difficult passages. You can subscribe now to Every Voice Now, anywhere you get your podcast. This might, this might, say, hopefully, this doesn't sound like too depressing of a question. <laughs> but do you think that this is possible? I mean, we're, I think we're so far down the road on the multi ethnic conversation. And like the mm-hmm. data is coming back on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how rare it is for a church to actually be not just multi-ethnic, but multicultural. Yeah. So yeah. do you ever despair of that kind of experience? Is it, is it an eschatological vision that you just chase with no hope? Or do you feel like the, that the church in America can, can really begin to create a significant number of multi-ethnic churches that, in, that embrace the complexities of who people really are, like you've already talked about so far? Mm-hmm. So yes and no, right? Sometimes I do despair. Sometimes, uh, I mean, also being a, a very outspoken woman in a complementarian tradition, um, you know, I'm too complementarian for the PCA and I'm too egalitarian, or I'm too egalitarian for the PCM, too complementarian for university. Yeah. Um, yeah, sometimes it does feel like despair, but that's when God does his good work, right? And to be a good Trinitarian, that's when the father sent a multi-ethnic son, right? Because Jesus was mixed. Yes. People don't talk about that, but Jesus was mixed. And there's really good, beautiful theology and exegesis about that, like the embodied presence of Christ, right? And then he left us with the Holy Spirit. So can we do it? No. Can the Holy Spirit do it? Yes, obviously. When will the Holy Spirit do it? I don't know, right? <laughs> that is the question. Yes, absolutely. Yes. He will in the eschaton. He's coming. He's going to make it right. It's going to be beautiful. Um, I, I think and I hope we can, but it's going to take a lot of people opening their minds. It's going to take a lot of pushback on those binaries. I want to make sure that I, that I underlined what she said about Jesus being mixed. There's so yes. much, there's so much stuff in the Bible. Um, that's that are facts hiding in plain sight. That are not, that are not only in the Bible, like you can find it, but it's in the Bible for you to understand that point, And we've ignored yeah. it. So yeah. there's the reason, the reason that the four women are included in the genealogy in, in Matthew's gospel is precisely because he wants people to know the gospel is for everybody. The point of the um, inclusion of Ephraim and Manasseh into the 12 tribes of Israel mm-hmm. in the book of Genesis is be- because God made a promise. We, we think of Abraham as the father of many nations as merely the prelude to justification by faith apart from works of the law. Right. So it's, but we don't understand that the whole point of Abraham, right? So this, this is just lying. This is just lying in the Bible. God's family is going to be made up of many different ethnicities. And this, someone was asking me in a in a um, different podcast of like, what about how 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 does how do you balance owning your ethnic identity with kind of like separating if, and, and so not having intermarriages? And I said, well, hold on. If God, if God it, it, it was a much more complicated question than that. I, didn't, I did not do it well. <laughs> Let me go back and say that again. The question was, we're dealing with this tension between people who are saying like, okay, 
I need to own who I am and understand that each culture has its own unique gifts that they offer to God. While at the same time saying, well, then what happens when you have like Irish and Italian together? Do you lose Ireland and Italy? Mm-hmm. And so what I was trying to say is that, well, if you say I'm going to make a family of a bunch of different kinds of groups, then the idea or kingdom, the idea is those groups are eventually going to mix together. So it seems to be in the providence of God. There will be the assumption of if we're going to like intermarry on the basis of these shared convictions and God says, I want a bunch of different ethnic groups sharing convictions, living in close proximity to one another, you know, A plus B equals C. And so there, it, it does seem to be within the redemptive purposes of God, the assumption that not only will multiple people live in community together, but the different kinds of people will enter into relationships with one another. And that's going to once again, in substance, even begin to create new cultures and interesting mixes. And so what I was trying to say with all of that is the Bible includes within it, like lying there on the on the surface of the text, this vision for a multi-ethnic intermixed community of the people of God. It Chant. does. It absolutely does. Yeah, go ahead, Richard. No, Do go I ahead. Some, I have something to say. Go. Um, it does, yes. In, in addition, and, and flowing out of what you're saying, Esau, not, not contradicting it, although I think you're the kind of guy that would be cool with that, yeah, come um, for me. Come for me. I'm yeah, not, I'm, not I'm coming for you. Well, I already told Richard I was going to be like, oh, you're late. Did you do Jamar like that? Did you do Beth more like that? No. <laughs> did you? And then we laughed and we're like, probably, because he's a busy guy. Um, <laughs> what what I think is important to note there is that there's also the story of Babel, right? Yeah. That he did not intend for a beige, bland whiteness. That was not his plan, right? His plan was for different languages. And, and it's not just like he was punishing them because they were prideful. He was saying, I told you to go out and and expand and tell different stories and then come back together again in that beauty. And Pentecost was not, they all heard in, well, English, right? Yeah. It was not, they all heard in Greek or in Hebrew. They all heard in their own languages. So I think the inevitability wasn't to just have a melting pot. I think yes. it was sinfulness and whiteness that turned into a melting pot. Think about what it would have been like if when Irish, refu- uh, well, refugees in a sense, when Irish immigrants came, when Italian immigrants came, if they hadn't had to blend into whiteness. This is where I think the, the, the complexity of the wider Christian story fits together. Is how, and this is where the mixed conversation becomes so complicated, is how do you affirm at both the same time the uniqueness of each culture and the, the, that we bring to the body of Christ as a good they're like Thai is good, Korean. I mean, mm-hmm. and obviously I understand there's subcultures within that. Um, sure. That Korean is good, while at the same time saying there's something good about Korea and China coming together, and have and and having Korea and China come together without eliminating either, and having that add to its complexity instead of like you said removing distinctions. And I think that the, that the church has, has not always done a good job of doing both those things at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's what I was trying to get at when I talked about what's happening with the family uh, or, or Abraham's family. It is both affirming each one of these groups are mm-hmm. unique and special to God, but he's also expecting these groups to live together. And when these groups yeah. begin to live together in the church, and that's just going to create interesting combinations. And I, and I think that both of those things are important in God's purposes. But I think Richard really wants to say something. What you got, Richard? What you got? Chandra, one of the... the things I've noticed is like you are referencing and lifting up a number of groups of people that might see themselves or might be seen as outsiders Mm -hmm. compared to to almost all of our other interviewers 
interviews, you in particular seem keyed in to like a lot of like outsider groups. And I, I guess my question is kind of a, I don't know if it's a simple one or like a, a naive one, but do you feel like being mixed race? Cause I've seen this also in my wife. She's very keyed in to when fee- people feel left out groups of people, individuals, she she's very keyed into that idea. So my wife who is my wife is also mixed race. And um, I'm just wondering if that is, is part of the mixed race experience is like learning what that feels like and how to recognize it in others. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's a good observation. I don't think it's a naive question. I think the naivete could come in if we, again, put that on mixed people. Yeah. Like that everybody who's mixed is like this or therefore mixed people should just show us the way. But I think there is an inherent part of being uh, displaced, of being an outsider, of being not easily fit into categories that does make your average person say, what's missing here? Because I know I've been missing a lot. Like I I have been in this place where I was missing, being missed. Um, So who else is there that doesn't see? So I think it it does in, in the same way that anyone who is marginalized notices more, right? And I think when we in the church, and this goes back to your question from earlier, you saw when we in the church are empowering, truly empowering minorities to speak, then it is not as much of a burden. When we're just asking minorities to speak and not empowering them and not giving them resources and an actual turned on microphone, like here's a sad looking megaphone. Could you teach us how to not be racist? No, but here's a microphone. And we, we put it into the AMP system and we told everybody else to sit down and shut up and listen teach us and by the way here's some money because you're worth your time and here's some food because we honor you right when we're actually empowering minorities to speak yeah that's so powerful right and so i think when you find people who tend to have that and really serve them then they can serve well but i think it takes that that active service to mixed folks to help them come out of the weariness of having a marginalized experience and to come into the joy of Hey, I'm a stranger and a sojourner. I get it. Yeah. Wow. I feel like there's nothing better. Like you, I feel like you just dropped the mic on me. I don't know if I can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. One last question that's kind of floating around. And it's this. Do you think that there is um, a reconciliation of these identities? Or do you think that it is this constant shifting back and forth? that will kind of, that marks the existence of mixed people. So you said that sometimes it identifies this way and sometimes it identifies this way. Is there a picture of like you as an integrated person who's made peace with the various parts of who you are as this unique person created by God? Or do you feel like you're still in this process of being, feeling in the mood to identify in different ways depending on your context? Like, what is your vision for them? Is the vision this like, this is the this is the tension that I live with my entire life? Or do I make peace with who I am? What do you think? So yes and no, right? Because that's the pushing back against binaries. <laughs> Sorry, there we yeah. go. The, the, yeah, the, bi- yeah, the binary part. Fix me. Uh, well. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I can't, you can't do that either. There we go. There no, we go. No, only Jesus. Only yes. Jesus. Only Jesus. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a moment by moment thing, right? I, I had someone... Um, a coworker who is a white man who is a true ally because in part he never calls himself an ally, right? Right. That's that's always a good sign. And he asked me, he was hosting a student conference and he asked me, he said, you know, how do I love these mixed students well? 
am I doing enough? And he listed off some things they were doing. And I said, I think the irony is like in so much of the Christian walk, the fact that you ask that question means you are right. Is the people who are saying, is this enough? How can I serve who are often the ones doing it? And so I think in asking the question of ourselves, am I comfortable with my identity? Do I feel the tension? Do I feel a peace with the Lord? That sometimes that shows we are, even though it doesn't feel like it. Yes. Right. And so I think that's the gift, right? That's the gift is that we are forced to ask these questions that someone who is monomethnic may not have to ask themselves. They ask other questions, but that one they don't have to ask. Uh, See, I always have to be careful when people on the podcast say things that I want to agree with (laughs) and just amplify it or one of my hobby horses. (laughs) I find the language of allyship important, but also complicated for similar reasons. I understand how family language gets weaponized in Christian communities. Mm-hmm. So in a sense where someone is trying to like push back on like a person affirming the ethnic identity or talking about justice, they'll say brother or sister, and then they'll kind mm-hmm. of give you this long spiel. So they use the family language as a means of control. Mm-hmm. But I also think that Christianity has to be able to make its own case. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we consider ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ means that I'm obligated to do things for you as a good brother or sister. Mm -hmm. And so I understand that allyship comes from a different place that has been brought into the Christian discourse and understand how it functions. I'm not saying anyone is is wrong for doing it. What I'm attempting to do is actually to be a good brother or a good sister. And, well, I guess I can't be a very good sister. (laughs) But to be a good brother, to be a good Good brother to people. A good sibling. (laughs) A good sibling. And what I'm trying to say is that Part of what that means is, well, what does this family remember, family member require of me? And not only that, it's because we're in a family together. There is, there's this, there's this assumption of affection and affirmation that comes being within the family. And it it also includes the assumption of hard conversations Mm -hmm. that are in a family Mm -hmm. because the the family is the most intense form of discipleship. Like you, you, you exercise Christian patience, Christian love in intense, small, daily community where people see you at your best and at your worst. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about justice or reconciliation or all of these things, I am saying to myself, how can I be a good brother? And so I'm glad that you talked about like that part of it. And so what I would hope is even as someone who is raising mixed race kids, that I'm learning from you and from other people, what it's like to be a good father to them and what it's like to be a good brother or sister I keep saying that. I'm so used to using gender inclusive language. When I'm referring to myself, it feels weird. <laughs> what it's sibling, like to be, to be a good sibling. Yeah. To be a good sibling to my brothers and sisters in Christ who come from mixed ethnicity. So thank you so much. Tell everybody the name of your book one more time. And I think it's coming yes. out in December. So you December can pre-order it now. 15th. Yes, December, thank you. December 15th? December 15th. And what's um, the name of the book? It is Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your Multi-Ethnic Identity. So you can order it right now. Yes. You can get the pre-orders and it will be in the stocking by Christmas. <laughs> exactly. And it's 30% off if you use the cost, the, the code OFFER21W um, from Ivy Press. And yeah, I'm excited because it feels like a gift. It feels like a gift to tell people stories, to, to share stories. Yeah. And where can they find you on social media if they wanted to follow you? Uh, they can find me at Chandra L. Crane on Twitter and Instagram or at Mixed Blessing Book. And then I have a website, chandracrane.com. So yeah, come on over. We have some lively discussions. I would love to talk with people and learn more about their stories. Thank you so much. And like I said, please go and buy the book and 
follow her on social media to keep up with what you'll be doing next thank you so much for coming on the podcast oh thanks for having me it was great part of what this episode does it talks about a particular community that often doesn't get a lot of attention you know we're all trying to figure out who we are and, and that becomes more or less complex depending on the background and the context from which you come I'm glad that she didn't present multiracial and multi-ethnic identity as the solution to all the church's problems. Sometimes people, you know, treat, you know, multi-racial relationships, marriages, children as kind of the walking solution to the problem of racism in America. And the idea that we can both affirm this union and these unions is good, while not at the same time treating it as a panacea, I thought was very encouraging. And I thought she showed a real deep sense of reflection on her own identity and the fact that that coming to grips with who each of us is is a process and i hope that i hope that it inspires the church to be aware of people who are making those struggles and to be sensitive and to give them space to work it out thank you for listening to the disruptors we would be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. We out. <laughs>